Hello and welcome to Cage Club. Two fans, 74 movies, one cage. Today's movie is Trapped in Paradise from 1994. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we have big news. I mean, we're up to 74 movies now because now available on VOD, Amazon, and iTunes, and probably elsewhere, is Pay the Ghost. Wow, it's <laughs> this show is never going to stop. <laughs> we have job security. In like the month and a half or so since we started this, he's released two new movies, and the Death of Superman Lives What Happened documentary has come out too. So our episode count has gone up by three in about a month and a half. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, that's not normal, right? Uh, <laughs> like it's, it's funny because uh, when you told me that movie was on demand the other night, I, I was basically like, well, the episode we just did is like negated. You know, <laughs> like, As soon as we make a mark, we have to erase it because a whole other movie comes out. He's been doing a lot of movies lately. I don't think he had any come out this year until The Runner came out about a month ago. And it's not like he's doing two or like one a month all year. He just happened to have two come out since we started this project. It's just weird timing, I guess. Yeah, weird, but great because, you know, we want to keep this going, right? Like, sure, I hope he yeah. never stops making films. I hope not, too. So this movie is our first Christmas Cage Club movie. It's Christmas in New York City, or at least it starts out in New York City, and we head to Paradise, Pennsylvania. I like Christmas movies that aren't really necessarily about Christmas. Like, it's set around Christmas. It's a lot of, like, the Shane Black movies, you know, Lethal Weapon and, like, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. They are set at Christmas, but they're not about, like, they're not traditional Christmas stories. And so here, the town of Paradise is getting ready for their big Christmas party. But, like, Christmas isn't at the center of it. It just... It's the framing for this movie. Yeah, I think it's more about the spirit of Christmas as opposed to that material side that we normally see, right? It doesn't revolve around the holiday itself, but more about what it stands for, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's just more about you know, the Christmas spirit. Cage plays a guy named Bill Furpo, and I don't even know if I knew their last name the entire movie. I think they referred to his brothers or him as the Furpo brothers at some point, but I didn't really pick up on it. Cage is Bill Furpo. He's got two brothers who start the movie out in prison. It's John Lovitz and Dana Carvey, two Saturday Night Live cage connections. I mean, they were both on SNL for years and years. Also, I don't think we talked about this, and I don't remember seeing in the movie. Do you remember that Dana Carvey was in Racing with the Moon? No. Wait, he, was he one of Crispin Glover's Gatsby buddies? He's called Babyface. Hmm. I couldn't pick him out. I mean, that's before his SNL days, right? I mean, he was just a stand-up back then, so... No, I did not I, know that. I searched on Google Images for Dana Carvey racing with the moon, and nothing came up, so I don't know. He must have just a really small part. There is sort of a Cajun action there, even though neither of us knew it at the time. So they're both in prison, sort of like raising Arizona, kind of. That Cage is also sort of a criminal, or has criminal mentalities... But it's these other two that are sort of the bad influences, and they get out of jail early due to overcrowding anybody who's going to be up for parole through June. These three characters, Bill, Dave, and Alvin, Alvin just makes me think when there's over this three, I was thinking like the three chipmunks, you know what I mean? Yeah. But later in the movie, it kind of plays out at times like Three Stooges. And at the very end of the movie, they call themselves the three wise men. There's so many connotations about three people. It just it kind of goes back and forth through a lot of these different things. Yeah, there's the three brothers are the main crux of the film. And yep. Cage is sort of the reformed criminal in a sense, right? In the beginning, he finds a wallet filled with hundreds of dollars and drops it in the mail. Shit. He's got kids. Dog, cat. Shit. It's no good. It's no good. Here I got it. It goes to confession and tells the priest, like, I'm struggling with this, you know, with being a good person. And then the priest is like, hey, your brothers are getting out on early parole. Then Cage sort of becomes like the neurotic almost for the rest of the film. He's the guy sort of trying to keep his brothers out of trouble. And I love when we meet his brothers. One's played by John Lovitz and one's played by Dana Carvey. And everyone's sort of got their own little quirk. Like, John Lovitz is the king of lies, right? He's like a master liar. Sort of like his SNL character, the liar. Dana Carvey is the kleptomaniac. Later on, you sort of see Cage might have been sort of the smooth operating con man if the three of them ever pulled jobs in the past together. And the way I saw it was sort of he was smart enough not to get caught and now he wants to set his brothers on the straight and narrow. But uh, yeah, they, they're just criminals at heart. And even though they've been in prison, they're not like reformed criminals at all. Like they have their parole hearing. The entire time, John Lovitz is just telling lies and all Dana Carvey can do is admire the one parole board member's tie because he's got like a glistening diamond 
that we find out a little bit later that Dana Carvey had somehow stolen. But the family reunites outside the prison. They're off to go have Christmas with their mother. You two are on parole. You cannot leave the state. You're in my custody. You cannot go. So just quiet down, my little one, and call me Dad. Hey, Dad. Can we stop and uh, get some ring dings of milk? Ring dings of milk? Ring dings of milk. Oh, yeah. Then we can get some balloons. We can go to the puppet show. What are you, two years old? Oh, well, pardonne moi. We're not all fancy upscale restaurant tears like you, Bill. Fine, fine. Then we'll get some ring dings of milk for the child in the bag. There's definitely going to be tension here for the rest of the film there's you know there's a pecking order that isn't being adhered to i always wondered who was the older middle and youngest brother on the way to the mom's house they kind of make that pit stop at a bodega sure and uh cage is just like waiting in the car and (laughs) dana carvey (laughs) is just like blatantly stealing money out of the cash register you know i just love this movie because it knows it's a comedy right like it defies logic in those ways like he's not trying to be sneaky whatsoever it's clearly played for comedic effect and then cage goes in to try and put the money back but the shopkeeper comes out and thinks they're stealing and it just like the escalation is really good here yeah there's just a wide open till at the front of the store and dana carvey's just like in the window with the whole world able to see just like taking out gobs of money and just sticking it in this jacket the shopkeepers had called the cops and the cops show up and they chase them out the back and cage pulls like a real smooth move and i think this is sort of the sense like you were just saying about how he's the the smooth talker I feel like he's gotten them out of similar trouble like this a lot of times before. Freeze, goddammit! I'll shoot! Sergeant Dickman, off-duty Queens! What is your name, rookie? Bertie. I got the mayor of my ass on account of punks like you! So stop jacking off, get the car, and pick up this scum! Okay. Move! Yes, sir. He's able to tell this cop is like a rookie cop. He's a little bit in over his head. Pulls something, you know, maybe his driver's license or whatever, out of his pocket. Says, hey, I'm an undercover cop from Queens go get the car, let's round these guys up, and then the next scene you see them in their mom's apartment having successfully evaded the cops. Uh, the one thing I wondered when they got to the mom's house is if uh, Nick Cage lives with the mom <laughs> because, like, she's kind of alone by herself, you know? We never see his apartment or anything else, so I don't know. I think, I feel like they all three of them would live with her because she talks about how one of the things she says to them when they're at the apartment is that she misses the, quote, creature comforts of when they were home which is pretty much all the things that they would steal from other people. And she knew that they were stealing them. And she said that basically that their entire apartment would be filled up with, you know, TVs and radios, and it would be hard to walk around. They'd have so much stolen stuff. So I feel like all three of them do still live with the mom. The two had just been in prison for however long. And Cage is the one, I think you make a good point, that he's just there, the only one who, like, who's not been caught by the law yet. I don't, I don't want to say that he's the only good one. He's the only one who hadn't been caught by the law, still living there, still doing his thing with his mom. Now, did you notice at all Nick Cage's accent in this movie? Oh, it's in and out like crazy. Well, I have a theory. The accent comes out when his sort of criminal self rises to the surface and when he's sort of trying to be more of the moral upstanding cage he buries the accent as if he's been trying to hide it almost his entire life so now when he's arguing with his family it's he's pouring it on so that's kind of like the vampire's kiss theory right that he mm-hmm. wants to put on that fake pretentious accent when he's trying to be taken seriously when he's just talking normally the accent's not there yeah i like that i can buy that because it, it is crazy like it's i feel like he's a good enough actor that he's not going to be inconsistent like that from one scene to the other, even though apparently, according to the internet, the entire cast hated making this movie, and so nobody really wanted to be on set. I think he's a good enough actor to not be inconsistent, even if he doesn't really care about the movie he's making. He's not going to just make himself look bad on screen. I think there is some kind of motivation there, and I think the one that you have does make sense. It's kind of interesting you said no one really enjoyed making this movie because it doesn't come across at all. And maybe that's the key to some to making some films. I heard that the set of Coming to America was like was a very bad, like no one was really happy at all on that set either. And yet that movie is hilarious. So it's strange because I really feel like, you know, like this movie or not, if, if it's your cup of tea or not, like it's competent. They pull it off. It's, you know, it's pretty well written, you know, for what it is. And I got a lot of laughs out of it. Apparently, John Lovett said that the the cast uh, started calling it Trapped in Bullshit. They were so unhappy with it. Wow. Um, (laughs) And also, according to John Lovett, this is kind of cool because it's going to precede something coming up. The director, George Gallo, didn't actually direct much and told the cast to do whatever they wanted. Just said, like, oh, you know, just, you know, act the scene out. Do whatever you want. So in place of George Gallo doing anything, apparently, supposedly, according to John Lovett, 
Nicolas Cage actually directed some of the film because Gao just would not give direction. Wow, that is crazy. Like, I could understand if a director is, you know, I want you to sort of embody this character with your own personality that you would, you know, on your day off and stuff, but I would never imagine them just pulling the deadfall director's move where it's like, ah, just show up and do whatever you want. Like, this one just seems to be much more of like a Hollywood production, you know? Yeah. Like, a lot more at risk, so that's unusual. It's interesting to hear, this might, you know, maybe this was Cage's first taste of the director's chair and we will yeah. watch a movie he directed later on down the line. So getting back to the movie for a little bit because we sort of had a detour there, everybody, the whole family is sort of reunited in their mother's apartment or maybe all of their apartment. The two boys, the prison brothers, have a letter that was written supposedly from one of their fellow inmates about this daughter down in Paradise, Pennsylvania who he hasn't seen in a while and he can't bear to think of another Christmas gone by without him seeing her and he would just be eternally grateful if they would go down there and you know give a message to her or somehow they would be able to bring her back up to prison so they could spend one Christmas together. Yeah, it's a real sob story, and Nick Cage doesn't buy it whatsoever. You know, he knows that his brother's a compulsive liar, so he's not having it, and he tears up the letter, but he's got another copy of the letter that he gives to the mom, and the mom like, reads it out loud and starts to break down and is like demanding that the kids go, and you know, this is just awful. Like You should do this for your brothers, but they're on parole, so they can't leave the state. Dear Dave and Alvin... It's been five years since I've seen my daughter. As I told you before, she refuses to visit me here. I'm getting old, and I can't stand the thought of another Christmas going by without seeing her. Her name is Sarah, and she's the only thing in the world that means anything to me. I know I'm asking a lot, but I would like for you to look her up in that town I mentioned to you, Paradise, Pennsylvania, and beg her to come see me. I know being on parole, you're not supposed to leave the state, but you two bastards owe me for all the shit I've done for you, and if you don't do it, I promise I will somehow escape from this place track you down like dogs, rip off your heads, and shit down your throats. All my love this holiday season, Vic Matsuchi. But she essentially gives him the green light, right? She's like, you know, go do this, like, you have to do this, it's the right thing to do. But Cage still isn't on board, and they show Cage, after the mom breaks down, and she thinks this is the most beautiful thing in the world, that the boys have to do this, Cage heads off to work at some upscale restaurant, and he's just explaining what a bouillabaisse is. And then John Lovett shows up. And he's just like, hey, isn't my brother doing great here? I think he's the manager. Because some guy is like, waiter, waiter. And he's like, uh, excuse me, sir. I'm the manager of <laughs> this restaurant. Uh, yeah, and then Lovett shows up. And he's like, you know, you never show up at work. Why don't I ever come here? What are you doing? And he feeds him this story where it's like, ah, uh, yeah. What does he say? He's like, you dropped your wallet at the scene of the crime. And the cops are at the bodega. Yeah, yeah, at the bodega. And the cops are at Ma's house. And they're coming here. And they've got to get out. And it's like this big, like, frenzy, like, one, two, three, lot on top of a lie that like cage just like doesn't have time to think about what's true or not because he's just so upset this guy showed up at work as the viewer you sort of know that this is just a string of lies and that it's crazy for cage to believe it but the cops are out there like they're they're coming they're right outside the restaurant and so as they sort of escape they drive away and the cops do converge on the restaurant and a little bit later we find out what happened but it all adds to the credibility that hey Maybe John Lovitz is telling the truth. What I like about it is that it's clearly a, a setup, right? But somehow they, they went the extra mile with the cops, right? Like the cops showing up really sells it and sort of does a turn on the audience and makes you believe John Lovitz is telling the truth at that point, you know? Because you're just so predisposed not to believe what he has to say. So I really enjoyed it when those, when those sirens started and i was like oh that was just like a good extra cherry on top of the lie to make it seem really authentic so they can't go back home the cops are at their house they pull over to the side of the road they go to a payphone, and john lovitz is supposedly talking to their mother and relaying what she's saying oh no you think we should stay out of new york all together ma it's christmas eve and we're... yeah well we're in new jersey now that's not far enough away yeah but ma we want to come home it's christmas yeah, but we... All right. All right, yeah, I'll tell him. Yeah, I love you too. All right. 
the the story that he was telling Cage that we're to hear is that they need to go down to Pennsylvania, go take care of that daughter, bring her back, give her the message, because it's too hot right now at home, the cops are here, just sort of lay low, go under the radar for a little bit. What I'd like to do is go back home. You know, Bill, maybe if we did something for somebody else, it'd have a way of coming back around for us. You set me up. What? Is this, uh... Is this one of your elaborate schemes? Oh, now, come on. Now, would I do that to you? Dave, I know how your mind works. You know exactly what you're doing. And the whole time, you stand there with this who-me expression on your face! You're doing it right now. All right, get in the car. Just get in the car. Alvin, is it me? Move! They finally managed to, to get out of town and convince and connive Cage to come with them down to this paradise place. And, you know, it, it's, I'm wondering the whole time, aside from a ride, I mean, they don't really need him to drive them down there. So I'm like, and I've seen this movie before, but I don't, didn't remember everything exactly. And I'm like, well, why would they need to trick him to get down there? Like, I don't remember why they need him exactly. But he's part of this little family crime team. And we come to find out they're going to need him a lot. Yes. So he's just part of their, like, crime crew, right? Like, I feel like they're too incompetent on their own, that they're just too reckless, they're not smart enough, that they need him just to sort of not keep them in line, but help them get out of trouble. They don't need him to pull off this job necessarily, but they know that things are going to go a lot smoother if he's with them. They're smart enough to know they need him in some capacity, (laughs) right? They're smart enough to know that they're dumb. Right, yes, there you go. And so they they finally get to Paradise, and this is when I realized this movie is based Basically, the dumb comedy version of Red Rock West. Right, I was thinking the same thing. There's even a shot that looks almost exactly like a shot in Red Rock West when they show the town sign, you know? Red Rock is in the desert and it's snowing in this movie, but that's about the only difference in the shot. Both of them, I mean, they show it more than one time, the sign, the Welcome to Paradise sign, and later in the movie, like, whenever they're trying to get out of town, they can't get out of town. Whenever they need to get back to town, or, you know, whenever they're just, like, something happens, they always find themselves thrust back in the middle of things. And so it's so weird that, you know, from 93 to 94, Cage does these two very, very different movies in terms of tone, in terms of directorial quality, with essentially the same core mechanism, which is they can't escape this town. Yeah, that is really bizarre, you know? We've talked before about when movies sort of double up on themselves, right? Like, we mentioned, like, The Armageddon. If I think it was, we mentioned Peggy Sue Got Married and Back to the Future, or sort of, like, these parallel films. It's so strange how this and Red Rock West share share that one core thing about, you know, this town that's impossible to escape. And so they, they roll in a town and Cage just says, like, like, really the only directive he gives them is just be inconspicuous. And so what's the first thing they do? They almost hit a horse that's carrying a police officer. And the horse, like, rears on its back legs. The police officer falls off, and the horse runs off. Yeah, so from the beginning, they're just trying to establish, like, this is just a safe, small community where, you know, nothing bad ever happens. You know, if a deputy falls off his horse, that's big news, you know? Yeah. And, like, I think they do a good job right off the bat, almost. They're able to talk their way out of it. They, it turns out that the one cop that fell off the horse might be a little mentally challenged, and I think that we, we he pops up again and again throughout the movie, and so they sort of chalk it up that maybe the horse just knocked him off, and they ask the cop there, who I think is his... It's like it's like a, like the police chief, like he's got the two sons on the horse, right? And the guy on the horse was one of his sons? Yeah. And so they ask the police chief, hey, we're looking for this girl, Sarah, do you know who she is? And he's like, I only know one Sarah in town, and she works at that bank right over there. You realize that these two criminals who were in jail 12 or 24 hours earlier are now going to be walking into a bank in a small town where there's an elderly sleeping security guard and the only security camera is not plugged in. Yeah, from this point on, the rest of the film came back to me in crystal clarity. As soon as I saw the bank, I remembered everything in like this flood. I just want to mention one thing quickly before we get into the bank. There just seems to be like a large amount of special needs people in this town. Like I don't 
I'm not saying like there's anything funny about that either, but you have the deputy, you have Dana Carvey's character, who Cage even refers to as special needs at one point. Yep. You even have one of the clerks who works at the local store. Yeah. There's the two other deputies, and even one of them seems to sort of be off kilter a bit. It's just unusual. I don't know if they're in there for comedic effect, you know what I'm saying? But it doesn't really play that way. It just left me kind of baffled. And I really do like what happens at the end. One of those characters is pretty heroic, so at least they did that right. I don't think this movie is smart enough to have them in there to show what challenged people can do. You know what I mean? I think they are only in there for comedic effect. You can look at it as a criticism. You're right, like the, the heroic effort at the end, it's sort of a redeeming thing. Whether he was mentally challenged or just bad at his job, it is a redeeming quality, a redeeming action that buys him goodwill through the entire movie. Yeah, I mean, it just kind of came across as a lazy shortcut if they wanted to establish just how sort of, you know, safe this town is, right? Like, <laughs> to have, like, a town filled with challenged individuals <laughs> isn't exactly, like, an appropriate way to, to show that. But the one thing I do want to point out, and we talked about it when we watched Red Rock West, and I think this is another reason that there's very direct parallels you can draw. The cops in this town aren't incompetent. They're not like Amos and Andrew where they're just like doing things recklessly. It's just more of like the small town Red Rock vibe where things like bad things don't happen and so they're sort of like simple. Like they're not bad at their job, they're just not equipped to handle actual crime. I think that's worth pointing out because anytime we can make Amos and Andrew look worse than it already does, I think it's important to make that <laughs> make that <laughs> qualification. By any stretch of the imagination, this isn't the smartest movie that we've ever watched. They do a good enough job setting up the town and setting up the characters that they're not bad at their job they're just small town folk yeah this town never sees any conflict so they're not really prepared when anything goes down but they're all good people and they try their hardest and in fact the police do a better job later than the fbi who, who show up into town so they walk into the bank we quickly meet a lot of the characters that we're spending a lot of the time in the movie with and one of these characters that we meet is madchen amick from twin peaks shelly johnson herself and the first thing i noticed is that her wardrobe in this movie is much less flattering like she always looks beautiful in Twin Peaks. And the first thing we see her in is like this huge 90s like pantsuit and it's just like ill-fitting and like she's a beautiful girl, beautiful woman, but she just does not look great. It just sort of threw me for a loop there. Yeah, there's unfortunate fashion faux pas from the <laughs> 90s that are sort of <laughs> ingrained in film history now. But yeah, stuff like women wearing shoulder pads. I think yeah. that was going on with her jacket. I think she had pads in those shoulders. But you're right, she's not on display, you know. She's not exactly there just to draw attention to her. And in fact, we find out her character kind of hiding out. But they walk in right away. Dana Carvey is stealing everything. Like, there's a sign that says, take a pen. So he takes all the pens. He's, like, taking things off the Christmas tree, eating gingerbread men. John Lovitz is sort of scoping it out, looking for ways to, to rob the place. Mansion Amick comes up and confronts Dana Carvey about eating these cookies off the tree, and then Cage steps in to calm her down and sort of de-escalate the situation. Sarah? Sarah Collins? Yeah? Are you married? Why are you going to propose? Yes. <laughs> Do I know you? No, I'm Bill. I apologize for my brother. He's uh, <clears throat> mentally retarded. I think the sequence was really well put together, to be honest, because as they're sort of walking around the bank, you got the music playing, and it's, you know, do you see what I see? Do you yeah. hear what I hear? And they cut to the open bank vault, and they cut to the unplugged security camera. You know, and you could see it in Cage's sort of body language that, like, he's kind of hooked, right? They've got their claws in him now. Like, all they had to do was get him in that bank, and they knew the rest would be a cakewalk. Not only does he want to rob the bank, but when he sees Sarah, you know, he springs for her, too. You know, Mr. Smooth Operator just, like, clicks right into gear. Yeah, he wants to steal the money, but he also wants to steal her heart. Um, <laughs> And it seems like there's not a lot of money at this bank. Even Cage, I think, says something like, oh, this, this is the type of place that wouldn't have a lot of money. Like, let's just get out of here before we get in trouble. And then, like, four security guards walk in carrying and, like, announcing, here's the $275,000 you wanted. And they just bring in huge, like, basically bags that have a dollar sign on them. <laughs> yeah. Like, here's the money you're going to steal. This is a moment where it's almost like a live-action cartoon. Cage is, like, smoking a cigarette. He's like, we got to get out of here. And then coughs up the smoke, and, like, his tongue comes way out. It's a live-action cartoon, like the heist that he's going to do, and they walk out to the car, 
And it's Cage who basically says, if I had a gun right now, I'd go back and rob that place. And they're like, well, what if we told you that there were a lot of guns in the trunk? He sort of has, like, this reaction, right? It's not an allergic reaction, but he has, like, this, like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, when Dana Carvey is stealing things, it looks like he's orgasming, right? <laughs> like, he's shoving them in his, like, impossibly deep coat way down, and it looks like he's touching himself. And <laughs> it does, like, an expression on his face. So I just got the sense that, like, each of these brothers have their trigger and that just sort of sets him off into a frenzy and this was his he saw the open doors and everything and then as soon as they walked that money in it was case closed and they do indeed have a freaking arsenal in their trunk <laughs> like i love just you know just to you know talk about cartoons it does it two or three times where it's like oh there's no money in the bank here comes the money and then it's like well we don't have any guns oh you need guns we got guns <laughs> like, it's comedic convenience it's not just that they have guns but they have like the trunk is like foam fitted to display AKs and pistols and grenades and pretty much everything they would ever need to pull off a robbery. It looks like the transporter's trunk. That's what I was thinking. And so they have the guns, so what do they need next? They need disguises. And they go to basically like a little town convenience store, and we meet here two clerks that we follow through a lot of the movie. And they also happen to be, like I guess, probably honorary deputies. But they take this honorary deputy title very seriously. They want to leave this job at least one of them wants to leave his job. The other one, like Mike was saying earlier, is a little challenged. But they're, they're a tag team. They're always together. And they sort of want to leave the job. And so when they see something fishy going on, they abandon all clerkly duties. And they're just going to follow these guys and try to catch them in the act of doing some kind of criminal work. Yeah, I never really considered that they basically close their store for the rest of the day and follow these guys like around town after the robbery. But you're right, like the one guy who runs the store is at least him, like he's just seems like one of those really paranoid militia guys, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Every town's got one of those, right? Here we have another example of Dana Carvey stealing with yeah. like no regard for any kind of secrecy. And he steals the toy out of a box of cereal. And that's when you yeah. know you've really got a problem. <laughs> like it's not not even useful or anything it's strictly just for the high at that point right yeah and it's just like i mean that's just play for community effect because he takes all the cap and crunch out and puts it on the floor and he he sort of gets away with the robbery right like he puts the toy in his pocket and then he's sort of hoisted by his own petard that he takes a step and just walks all over all the cap and crunches on the floor and still even then nobody cares like nobody sees him doing it yeah it's not until nick cage is like are you ready to go yet and i think sees like something sticking out of his jacket and that's when he like makes him take everything out and he's got like a hundred items stuffed into his like legend of zelda impossible to carry all these items type of jacket that he's wearing they get ski masks they get coats and they get one thing that i know you have a point about cage buys a pair of amazing orange glasses that he like I, I can't like they're they're like they're futuristic orange glasses, but like if the future was imagined in like the eighties or early nineties. Yeah, they strike me as like Back to the Future two giveaway glasses and a Happy Meal or something like that. That it was designed for like look at what we imagine the future is going to be like. Yeah, and they all get glasses as part of their disguise. But I just would like to point out that once again, Nick Cage plays this entire scene wearing sunglasses, and you yeah. know he's done that a couple times. Most notably, probably in Deadfall, where he's wearing shades the entire movie, but also in Vampire's Kiss, he wears them for a large portion. The thing that I like most is just that I get this notion in my head that he's trying to sort of handicap himself as an actor because the eyes are the most expressive thing that we have, you know, and if you're an actor, you can really convey a lot of emotion. And, and here he is in at least three movies where he's handicapped himself. He's taken his yeah. eyes out of the equation and you have to sort of get it from his body language and, and his voice. Yeah, and even though, like, they're so obvious about what they're doing and, I mean, Cage is, like, wearing those sunglasses while they're shopping, like, they're, they're very clearly out of town and up to something, but you realize at this point that they're, like, the smartest people in town, which says a lot about this town, these people who are very obvious about being up to something can still sort of fly under the radar. Yeah, there's this big harvest festival that uh, allegedly tourists flock to from miles away, but that's never really, <laughs> they never get to this festival. So the guy even asks if they're here for the winter festival, and they don't even try and establish an alibi. They're just like, nope, we're, we're, just passing, <laughs> we're just passing through, you know, buying some disguises on our way out of town. So once they have all the disguises, that they, no planning at all, they just go right to the bank, 
Dana Carvey's the getaway driver. John Lovitz and Cage go inside, and they're like, all right, we're going to open the vault. We want that money. And Mrs. Anderson, who comes back a little bit later in the movie, Mrs. A, as Cage likes to call her, she says, the only person with the key is my husband, and he's not here right now. And she essentially tries to talk them out of robbing the bank. It's a goddamn robbery! Get up! Get up! Get up! Who is talking? Do you boys really, um, do you boys really want to do this? Do what? Well, uh, you know, rob the bank. Absolutely. We have thought this over, and this is the thing to do. Keep them up. But, but on, on Christmas Eve, uh, it, it doesn't seem right, don't you think? You're going to ruin the Winterfest. The Winterfest. I have a gun, and you're talking about the Winterfest. Uh, well, who are you? I'm married to Mr. Anderson. Ooh, lucky him. The president of the bank. Uh, uh, the, the bank vault is closed right now. It's locked. It, it's locked? All right, who's got the key? Raise your hand. You got it? No? All right, you key, key. All right, you fashion queen. Who's got the key? My husband is the only one with the key. Key, My husband is the only one with a key, and I'm afraid he's out to lunch right now. Well, once you get back? Yeah, she's like this little sweet old lady. You know, the robbery isn't exactly going quite as planned, I guess. And she mentions that the president of the bank is across the street eating lunch with the vault key. And she's sort of just like, you know, why even do this? It's Christmas and all that. But they are just, you know, they're in thief mode, right? <laughs> it's kind of funny that they didn't stake it out a little longer too, right? They, if they had just checked to see if the president of the bank was there, <laughs> they wouldn't have to go through all that trouble. They run into this very blindsided. So Cage and Lovitz go across the street to get the bank president with his wife and uh, they, they try to get there and like this restaurant is so crowded it seems like everybody in town is right there and they get frustrated that they can't get to this guy in time so they basically hold a robbery of this restaurant the woman behind the cash register goes to get her money and he's like no we don't want to rob here we want to rob the bank and she's like oh well it's across the street. And he knows, you know, he's like, I know, <laughs> I know, but he needs the president with the key. I like this move. Like, so this is just so ridiculous what they do next that I have found myself loving it. They basically, and it's Dana Carvey, like sort of the least smart out of all of them is like, you know, we can't just leave this whole restaurant here. They're going to call the cops as soon as we leave. So they make everybody go across the street to the bank and, and hold them up as well <laughs> until they rob the place. And so they bring the whole restaurant back to the bank. Cage gets into the vault, finds the hidden lasers, gets the money. But on the way out, he trips the laser. And so they're in a, a panic and they have to get out of the bank. And Dana Carvey drives away. He stops on a dime and causes like six cars behind him to all crash into each other. And then as soon as Cage and John Lovitz catch up to him again, he drives off again. Like he has one job and he can't even do that right. Yeah, I don't know why he's the getaway driver too. Like he's much better as the stick-up man. It was his idea to hold up the diner as well. So <laughs> maybe Lovitz should have been driving. Uh, yeah, and they sort of have to chase him like around town to get into the car. This is when we cut back to the prison where they were paroled from we see the guy who had the idea to rob this bank and he finds out it was on the news that this bank in paradise pennsylvania has just been knocked over he gets enraged yeah this is another one of those cartoon moments if you were to ask me because they just gets done telling this story about like he's gonna rob this bank and he'll be set up for his retirement out of prison and they're like no one would dare rob that bank and then some guy runs up and he's like you know that bank you're always talking about someone just robbed it and it was just like you know such a one-two punch i was like man that is that is more comic logic right there like as soon as i'm done telling the story the bank is robbed we cut back to paradise and a helicopter lands and i have for you a revelation this is going to i think blow your mind uh we were talking last episode about how there could be four or five timers for cage club right like just like for snl we have in this movie a six timer what we have this guy his name is al cerullo and he's the helicopter pilot he's credited in guarding tests and trapped in paradise He's not credited in the movie, but he's credited as miscellaneous crew for Kiss of Death, Sorcerer's Apprentice, Knowing, 
and World Trade Center. Always plays a helicopter pilot. Has played a helicopter pilot in almost 500 movies. What the hell? I guess when Hollywood needs a helicopter pilot, they call Al Cerullo, and he just does the job. Oh my god, dude. I think we found the first topic for our documentary, because this sounds amazing. I want to meet this guy, the Hollywood helicopter pilot. It's crazy, because I was just going through, and I found a new way to look for cage connections, and I was just looking for everybody with a picture, and he has a picture on IMDb. And I looked him up, and I was like, wait, what's happening? And I clicked, and I was like, oh, and he's just always credited or in the crew as helicopter pilot. Like, that's the only thing he does. He never really has lines. He's just the guy who drops Richard Jenkins off, the FBI agent, when they come into town. I lost my mind when I found this out. Dude, I, I'm having trouble gathering my thoughts now. I, I'm, I'm wondering if he was somewhere in Firebirds, <laughs> too, and they just missed him. But, wow, that, that's insane. That's, that's pretty amazing. It's incredible. We see Richard Jenkins get in, and the town starts getting very snowed. And that they're, they're trapped in paradise, as the title suggests, because there is a huge blizzard, which never really looks like a huge blizzard. Maybe it's just me. But there's a huge blizzard that's going to close all the roads and that they can't get out of town. And we see Richard Jenkins say, well, if they're heading north, they're going to be stuck. Where are we headed? North. No. I swear we passed that farmhouse before. What? Oh, no, all those uh, farmhouses didn't look alike. Darling, we're going around in circles. I'm going to break your neck. I just did what the map said. I made four lefts. Four lefts? Is a circle, you idiot! So they're lost and getting chased by the cops now. Like a cop had sort of pulled a quick U-turn. I don't know whether it's because they saw them out on the road. They were looking for them or if they just saw somebody headed toward the closed road. It might not necessarily be nefarious, but they freak out, and they skid off the road, and their car flips, and they land in a ditch, and they're not hurt, but their car is essentially done for. Ow! Oh, ow! Ooh! That hurt! I think what happened is since the FBI was called in after the bank was robbed, then there's like an APB out, and so like now all the state troopers are sort of keeping an eye open for any suspicious people trying to leave town, or anybody really. They'll just pull over anybody since the bank was robbed. Yeah, it, it starts chasing them, and they got no snow tires, so yeah, they kind of go off this little <laughs> embankment, right? And I love it because, again, here we go with like cartoon logic. The cop just drives right past the embankment, or I think it's like a little bridge they fell off and the cop drives right by and doesn't notice them but a tow truck pulls up and does notice them like immediately like where was that guy where did he come from they didn't gain enough ground on the cop for him to ever like lose visual on them and they just they fly off the road and then he just keeps on driving by so maybe he wasn't even after them at all also if he was driving and you just see a car in front of you and all of a sudden there's a car not there and there's no roads you might want to investigate that yeah that's called a ghost car now does a ghost car have anything to do with the ghost rider oh um i don't know we'll have to find out when we get there (laughs) and so the like the tow truck driver pulls over and he's like hey hey guys you okay and they're like, you know, yeah, we, we, have, we, we, we need to get out of town. Can you drive us to the interstate? And he says, no, the roads are closed, but I can get you somewhere safe. So where do they go? But they go to the house of the bank manager and his wife and Sarah upstairs. Sarah Collins, Sarah, whatever her real last name is. They go to this house where basically everybody we've met in this movie so far, where they all live. Yeah, and this is the first instance of there's no escape from the town of Paradise. <laughs> this is the first Red Rock instance where... They try to leave, and they're being pulled back in. They're sort of forced to have Christmas dinner or Christmas Eve dinner with the people they just robbed. Also, outside of the only other characters that we've met in the movie, the deputy or the store clerks, they're out in their car because they've been following Cage around. And they're like, something's up. We're going to find out. We're going to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, because they're carrying those big duffel bags around. So, yeah, the one guy's like, I bet the money's in the duffel bag. <laughs> like, he's right. You know, it's like, that's what's so funny. Like, the one guy who's, like, actually onto it is the one guy no one's ever going to listen to. The big thing that we learn in this scene is that thanks to the blizzard, thanks to the chaos that the blizzard brought upon the prison, 
two inmates escaped from the prison that these that these guys were just paroled from. And not only that, but they also went straight to this trio of brothers, the the Flurps. What's their name? I'll go with the Flurps. I don't remember. Furpo. <laughs> to the Furpo's mother's house, and they're they're basically taking her hostage. They know that these brothers robbed the bank. They're going to basically hold their mother ransom until they get their money. Yeah, basically they just instantly jump to the conclusion it's got to be them because they they've always just been like the biggest like sort of annoying jerks in the jail, right? Like they're like the losers of the jail. <laughs> it's kind of like if it was high school. Yeah, they're like the only people stupid enough to actually rob the bank this guy was sa- sort of saving to rob. So things are not going well for for mom right now, but the three boys are being taken in basically like they're new members of the family. Like, "Oh, you guys must be so cold here." literally take these gifts from under our tree, put some new clothes on, join us for Christmas dinner. They're just like the nicest people in the world. Like everybody in this town is just genuinely nice. And it's at this point that I think they kind of start to realize, or at least Cage starts to realize that like they made a mistake in robbing these people. Yeah, this is sort of what I mean by the spirit of Christmas. You know, even though these people in this town lost everything that they have, they're giving the shirt off their back to these strangers. And I think it starts, I actually thought maybe it started to affect Alvin first because the mom takes to him and she's very doting and he loves her cooking and all that kind of stuff. And then once Cage realizes that Sarah lives there, he sort of wants to ingratiate her and acts on his best behavior and he and this is sort of where they start realizing they made a mistake. And they also realize that, according to the bank manager, they're like basically trying to advocate for bank robbery. Like, it's a good thing it stimulates the economy. The bank manager's like, no, like, this is actually probably going to put us out of business. The FDIC is going to come into town. They're going to investigate. They're going to find out that we had all these security flaws. And these big banks that have been trying to come in and take us over, this is all they're going to need. So basically, I'm going to be out of a job. This whole town's economy is going to face upheaval. Like, this is this is a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah, I think the money was sort of a collection the town takes up once a year to cover any of the loans with this collateral, right? Something along those lines? I don't remember exactly. Everyone sort of pitches in at the end of the year and creates a fund for the town at the bank. And it turns out that's the money that they robbed. So, yeah, they basically robbed everybody in town, like, personally. And so after dinner is over, they give the boys a little bit of spending money for the road, which, like, no, you don't have to, you don't have to, like, no, we insist. And then Majin Amick drives them to the bus station because they're going to catch a bus down to Philly and then catch a train up to New York. As they're going toward Philly, the inmates are now in a car coming toward Paradise. And you really wonder if they're ever going to. I mean, like, you know that they're going to intersect at some point. You just don't know where because as the one set of inmates are coming toward Paradise the stars of the movie are leaving the town. And there's somewhat of a incident at the bus station, which again, prevents them from leaving paradise. Right? They've got the tickets and everything and they're ready to go, but then the deputies show up, right? The guys who've sort of been tracking them the whole movie. Yep. They show up and he grabs the bag and Richard Jenkins shows up with the FBI and everybody is sort of there and it's like a standoff and Nick Cage grabs the gun out of his waist and just like fires off a couple shots and, and screams, he's got a gun he's got a gun and there's just like mass panic but he creates a, a clever getaway again for the brothers three yes yeah, somehow the two deputy clerks get arrested or at least subdued by police and all three brothers are able to get away like it's like the perfect I think it also just goes back to being, you know, a comedy movie that they need to get out of the situation, and it's just, like, through the chaos, but, like, it's exactly the kind of distraction that if Cage hadn't been recruited for this mission, they never would have gotten out of there alive. They managed to escape that situation, but they immediately get themselves into another when they think it would be a good idea to steal someone's rowboat and row out of town on a freezing river. Remember, this is Christmas Eve. Like, it's, it's very cold. Yeah, it is, there's a blizzard, <laughs> at least a snowstorm. They're rowing along, and everything kind of seems like it's going to work, but duh, like, there's a helicopter checking the river for people trying to escape on boat, yeah. you know? You know, it kind of got a flashback to Zondali when Dana Carvey goes overboard. But, like, the town, again, like, I don't know, like, they're just such genuinely good people that they see three guys rowing a boat at night with no light in the middle of winter, 
they don't like stop to consider what these guys are doing. All I know is they see somebody in trouble. People get in the freezing water to rescue Dana Carvey, bring him inside, and give him CPR and bring him back to life. Like this is like the the, the most honest and pure form of like gratitude and generosity that we've seen yet in this movie. And the whole movie, the town's been nice. Like this is just like an extreme example. Yeah, you want to know what really blew my mind about that about this rescue is that it's a bunch of like really old people. They're yeah. like seventy or six, seventy and eighty year old people, and they they're like, oh my gosh, someone's in the river. And these old men are like rescuing this young man. It was just like, oh my goodness, look how useful. You know, it's even like old people are useful. Everything's wonderful. It's like the most ideal town in the world. But we find that the town, this most ideal town in the world, is sort of harboring a dark secret that we don't know about that we find out that Madge and Amick lied, and we sort of talked about that earlier, but she's like the daughter of the guy in prison, right? Of like the mastermind? Yeah, so she's the daughter of Vic, who was the guy that always talked about robbing the Paradise Bank. And he's the guy who broke out and is on his way to paradise with their mother in the trunk <laughs> so that he's basically going to like kill them and take the money. We learn this because Cage pulls Madchen away and he sort of confesses to her that you know they did a bad thing or that he's having a change of heart. And she's like, I'm not as honest as you think I am. And then he, he leans in to kiss her and she pulls away. And I'm like, oh, man. Like, this is the first movie in a while that Cage hasn't had some beautiful girl on his arm. You know what I mean? Like, this is just him, the guys, doing guy stuff. Yeah, I definitely wrote it down that, you know, he hadn't, didn't have any chance to compromise her in this film. But he goes in for that kiss, and it is like, there are no signs. She is not, like, giving no. him any signal whatsoever. He's just sort of going in on, the, on just his bravado. And while he's completely misreading the situation and trying to kiss her, the brothers, in their infinite wisdom, steal a horse and a sleigh, the same horse in the beginning of the movie. They steal it from that challenged cop. And they sort of pick Cage up, and they their, their new escape plan is to take this horse and sleigh out of town. I don't know how far they thought they planned ahead, but it was not far enough. Well, that sort of goes in theme with their schemes, right? Like, these brothers, like, they're really good at everything except for planning, you know? They need one more brother or, like, a sister on their squad. But, yeah, you know, the bank, they rushed into that job, and they're trying to race out of town and get trapped in paradise. And then, they, yeah, they just take a horse, and who knew Dana Carvey could drive a horse, right? Do you drive horses? Well, technically, he's driving the horse and carriage, and they're outrunning, like, cop cars. Yeah, it, it must be, like, the fastest horse in the world, because they are outrunning cop cars, they're outrunning everybody, like, they look like they're going to get away. What happens, they, they abandon the horse, and they start to go away, like, they, they, they meet up with somebody who's going to give them a ride out of town, but then they look back and they see that the horse and the sleigh are sinking into ice? There's suddenly a horse rescue. Yeah, yeah, they make it to the freeway or the highway, and they're flagging down a car, and Dana Carvey's like, we can't just leave him here, you know, this just don't feel right, and even Nick Cage is like, yeah, I don't, I don't feel right either, but, you know, what, do you, what can we do? There's nothing we could do, we gotta go, but, yeah, the horse starts to sort of follow them, the sleigh starts to break the ice, and he, yeah, he starts to go into the ice, and, and yeah, it's just like this really quick, dramatic horse rescue, and then, like, a jump cut to the horse like outside of a diner and they're all in like clean dry sweaters i think this is when cage finally vocalizes the change in heart because he says i think we should return the money and john lovett says no way like we're not returning the money and dana carvey's like i think we should return the money too and so it's kind of two against one i think that it's because of cage's change of heart or also maybe because like you were saying at dinner that mrs anderson took to him so much to dana carvey so much that he also kind of has a change of heart and he comes clean to Cage that he actually, he, he hands Cage back his wallet and says, hey, you didn't drop this. I, I had it the whole time. Yeah, everything sort of comes out in the open. Almost everything, that is. He finds out that, yeah, it was all just a scam to get him to rob the bank. He doesn't take it too well. And, you know, we get the rage of Cage as he throws the table over, right? And storms yeah, out of the diner. And I love how he says to the waitress, you know, put the table on their tab. Make sure they pay for it. <laughs> And we also find out in the scene, which adds to the rage cage, John Lovitz called the cops when he was at the restaurant. He said, I, I called them if there was a sniper on the roof. And so it's this guy that with like no regard for anything that's going on in the world around him, calls in this fake like gunman scare 
just so they can get caged out of town. Like, it's both of his brothers have betrayed him to get him down here, and now they're in this world of trouble. They're stealing from people that are genuinely good, and it's just heartbreaking for Cage. It really sort of paints the Lovitz character as, like, a true sociopath, you know? <laughs> like, this guy who, kind of like in Dead, the dad in Deadfall, who faked his own death and manipulated his son to kill his uncle. Like, maybe not to that degree, but you have a character here who's lying to his own brother, you know, and getting his brother in danger and doesn't even tell him that those guys broke out of prison to come kill them or any of that. And so Cage storms out of the restaurant and he's trying to find a ride back into paradise that they have finally escaped. And it's in in the ultimate irony and sort of kind of in the same vein as Red Rock that all he wants to do is get back to town and now all the drivers are like, hey, you need a ride to New York? I'm going to New York. And he's like, where were you a couple hours ago? But he finally finds a car with two guys very genuinely willing to help, that they're going to paradise. It just so happens to turn out to be the two inmates who escaped from prison. So I love how you can see Nick Cage's change of heart immediately from once he ex- from when he exits the diner. He goes up to these two strangers he doesn't know. He asks them for a ride. They say, we don't like to give rides to strangers. And he's like, come on, man, it's Christmas. Like, you know, like, where's your Christmas spirit? Like, I just discovered my Christmas spirit, you know? And he's like instantly trying to like spread that feeling. Yeah. Uh, I really like that. You know that he is reformed and, you know, he's going, he's on mission to return the money. Hey, something with you. Uh, look, I know I just met you guys and it's kind of corny, but tonight's been a real eye-opener for me. How's that? I just, I realized tonight that I, I love people, you know? I mean, life is great. Yeah? Ah, isn't life great? They're riding the car with Cage's mom in the trunk and Cage pulls out the picture of his mom and they freak out and they pull a gun on Cage. Cage dives out of the car and there they are, the brothers in their sleigh and horse there to pick him up so that that horse comes in comes in handy one more time yeah i guess the brothers realized that or at least lovitz came to his senses and is like you know you guys are right you know and off screen they probably decided like we should you know we got to return the horse anyway maybe we should go catch up with with our brother and it's a good thing because yeah <laughs> the guy pulls the gun out in the car and cage's face is just like oh my like he really is so confused because he has no idea these people are connected to the heist in it you know to the story in any way so it was just a really good cage expression (laughs) (laughs) and they go to return the money but things don't work out well like cage still has the vault key from the beginning of the movie he's and they make a joke earlier that like same time next month like let's go back and rob it now that we have the key but they go back to return the money and there's a gate or like a fence that's locked that they can't get by, instead of returning the money to the bank, and they set off the, the alarm at the bank, they go to the church, and they drop off all the money at the church and say, this is a gift, this belongs to the people of paradise, here it is from the three wise men. Yeah, or as I was calling them throughout the whole movie, the three unwise men. <laughs> I was just trying to pull as many sort of Christmas parallels as possible. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I also, you know, all this sleigh talk just reminded me that the film opens up with store window, and there are three guys in a sleigh. So I just put that together. It's supposed to be mm. them later in the film. And so, but as they're walking away from the church, the deputy clerks finally catch up to them. And then they pull guns on them. They're like, all right, you're coming with us. They bring them back to the bank manager's house, right? And I sort of got like a Moonstruck vibe here because just like at the end of Moonstruck, basically everybody we know from this entire movie is in this living room at the same time. Those two guys bring the brothers to the president's house. And then when they go in, like Richard Jenkins and the FBI show up like immediately, right? Absolutely everybody like in the movie converges like on this house at the end. So as they're driving to the house, Richard Jenkins and the FBI just happen to be driving and they see them get in the car and their car like license plate starts with duh and they're making jokes about that and so they call it in and they're following them to the house when the deputy clerks bring the three brothers inside they're just going to unveil to the bank president that hey these are the guys who stole your money they get there and the inmates are there and they knock out the deputy clerks and so it's the bank president and his wife it's Match and Amick, it's the three brothers, it's the two deputy clerks, it's the two inmates, and it's the brother's mom. <laughs> and the police chief, right? And the police chief's kids? Yeah. Like, everybody, everybody's there. Like, there's like 15 people in this living room, and pretty much everybody we've seen in the movie, aside from the FBI, 
is right here. And then the FBI shows up outside. So it's like the entire movie has converged onto this one point and one place in time. So I love when Richard Jenkins and them are making fun of that license plate because it sets up how they find the inmates that have escaped. Like they're just sort of sitting in front of the president of the bank's house and they notice a car with a license plate and he's like, hasn't that, didn't we hear that over the wire? Someone's looking, this is like a, a wanted car or something like that. I was just laughing to myself because they actually set that up. You know, they set up yeah. the fact that he looks at license plates. It's like, must be a vanity plate, this or that or whatever. So that was pretty clever. And they're all in the living room and Cage confesses right there. It's another one of his, his Cage professionals. He's like, hey, we robbed the bank, but like, we've realized that you guys are the best people. Like, we feel awful about it. Please don't hate us. We returned the money to the church. And then the mom said something like, if I knew this was what was going to happen, I wouldn't have let them come down before. But after I heard that letter, like, I had to let them come and meet up with that guy's daughter. And the guy's like, I didn't write any letter. And they're like, uh. Yeah, <laughs> love it. Like, again, love it. It's, it's like just how deep do they, how deep do the lies go, you know? <laughs> like, even the letter was a fraud and you know that is is revealed here too which is great and um yeah there's there's that wonderful moment when nick cage is like you know these people they're good people you know like not like us right he's like (laughs) we're bad people like we don't deserve this like he always has like these moments at the end where his character is like it's like an ebenezer scrooge moment right where he's like it's good to be changed and you know i'm happy now finally like can't you see what's right and they just can't convince vic and Sarah, the daughter of Vic, can't convince him either to give himself up. But Sarah sort of has her change of heart when she goes to the church. She leaves and goes to the church and like finds out that the, the boys did return the money. They, they have reformed. They are true to their word now. So she has a change of heart because the, the secret that she'd been harboring is now out in the open. So she doesn't really have to hide from anything anymore. The FBI agents break in or they're like somebody fires a shot. Oh, well, here so we go. We have we have the redemption. Is, is the first shot is the first shot the redemption cop? Well, I believe the way it goes down is that Vic has sort of like his cellmate with him and he's holding everyone at gunpoint and the deputy noticed like the inmate like just moves his arm off of him for a second and the and the deputy grabs the gun from his waist, knocks him over the head and then shoots Vic in the arm, right? And then becomes like a hero and then the FBI sort of storm when they hear the gunshots. And that's what I like about it. I mean, you don't like the cops don't need to be mentally challenged. They could just be simple small town folk but i like that he has this moment of redemption that like you were saying earlier that this is he said he said nothing but troubles this entire movie he keeps getting knocked off horses having his horse stolen but here in the most important scene of the movie he finally does something right uh and then they sort of drag the entire town down to the police station (laughs) (laughs) this is great like just when you thought everybody in the movie was in the last scene it's like nope we missed a couple people and like it's literally like everyone from the diner everyone from the bank you know everyone that was on the street it's awesome and so we know the whole story like we know everything that's happened but richard jenkins is there trying to sort things out nobody's like really saying anything and then the deputy clerks are like well we knew that they were at our store half an hour before the bank was robbed and he's like wait you guys have been withholding info this whole time they're like uh <laughs> richard jenkins is like i i don't have the proof but like i know it was you guys who robbed the bank And they're like, it wasn't us. Like, we don't have any money. Like, what money? We don't know what you're talking about. And then Richard Jenkins says, well, if you didn't rob the bank, like, where were you this afternoon? And they don't have an answer. And then in from the door walks Madge and Amick, and she's like, they were Christmas shopping with me. Yeah, the whole town covers for them, basically. And Richard Jenkins, like, his whole world starts to crumble. (laughs) Like, you know, like, everything he thought he knew has just been flipped on him. And no one is cooperating. Like, you know, he can't understand why they would do this to these for these strangers that a few hours ago just ruined their entire lives but yeah they teach him the meaning of christmas and richard jenkins says that he's he feels like he's getting really jammed up here he's got no evidence the money's been returned the the priest walks in and he's like yeah i got all the money right here and so richard jenkins says don't screw this up i feel like you're getting the break of a lifetime i i I gotta let you go like all i have you on is breaking parole I think the town rejoices, like they've been able to to redeem these three boys, that they were troublemakers when they came into town, and then like the same day, or maybe the next day, it's all very, it all happens very quickly, they're suddenly good again, or good for the first time. Yeah, the movie basically happens on Christmas Eve, right? So it's the morning of Christmas Eve, these boys get out of prison, and then by that night, they're in paradise, and I think 
or the next day they're in paradise because they're robbing the bank on Christmas Eve. They've, I guess the whole movie is Christmas Eve. Yeah, I think it's they get released the day before Christmas Eve. They get to they get to paradise on Christmas Eve, and then you're right, like that's where the movie takes place. And then the next day, the next morning, they're sort of on the bus out of town, right? <laughs> like yeah, on Christmas morning. Yeah. And so at the end of the movie, Cage is talking to Madge and Amick, and like you were saying earlier, it's like well. Is he going to get the girl? Like, he always gets the girl. I mean, in pretty much every movie, with with some exceptions, when it doesn't make sense, but, like, in a lot of movies, there's always some kind of, like, will they, won't they? And we really haven't seen a movie where Cage hasn't gotten the girl. He has a little speech to her about what, what their future could hold together. Listen, how would you feel if I were to settle down in a place like this? A place like this? Or this place? You know, maybe I could manage some little restaurant down here. I'd get you half off on lunch, free coffee with every meal. I'll see you every morning in the bank when I'm making my deposits. Stay out of the bank, all right? Give me a chance. Yeah, and so it appears that Cage found where he belongs now. Now that he is completely reformed, I don't think he'll have any criminal temptations uh, if he keeps himself trapped in paradise. It seems like she's not going to give in to him, but then they kiss and then the mom sees them kissing. She's like, oh, look, my boy finally has a girlfriend. She's like, when are you two, meaning Dana Carvey and John Lovitz, like, when are you two going to get hitched? And they're like, hey, we're not attracted to each other. <laughs> and it's just like, uh. But what I did like about that scene is that they're both eating their payday candy bars. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, they finally got their payday. And that's the end of the movie. Like, Cage stays behind in paradise, going to start a new life. He's going to run his own little business. And it's going to be like the, just the perfect, adorable little life. Yeah, they're going to take it slow. You know, we kind of talked about the similarities between this and Red Rock, about the town that you can't ever leave. And this town doesn't let Cage leave at the end. I thought that was kind of funny, where he escapes from Red Rock. He never escapes from Paradise. He never gets an adios Paradise line. That would have been great. Okay, so I have one major Cage connection that I hope doesn't break your brain. Okay. We had before the six-timer in Al Cerullo, right? Mm -hmm. What if I told you that in this movie... Uh Uh-oh, I'm getting nervous. What if I told you that this movie had a 16-timer? I would have to say, uh, you are lying, good sir. There's no way. I mean, what are you talking about? So this might be a little bit of a technicality, no down, boo-over. But a guy, Marco Kairis, who is an extra in this film, is in 16 Cage movies. (laughs) What are you talking about? He's in Trapped in Paradise as an extra... He's a pizza boy in Matchstick Men. He's Sindino's pilot in Con Air. He's a recreation guard in Face Off. The reason that he's in 16 movies, and he's credited in those four, is because he's Nicolas Cage's stand-in. Oh. And he's credited in Trapped in Paradise, Kiss of Death, Leaving Las Vegas, Snake Eyes, 8mm, Bringing Out the Dead, Gone in 60 Seconds, The Family Man, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, Wind Talkers, Adaptation, National Treasure, and Lord of War. He is in all of these movies as Nicolas Cage's stand-in, but he's actually in the movie in four of them. And so I really wonder if... Because this is the first one. This is the first time that he's worked with Cage. And you can look at, his, you can look at him on IMDb. His name is Marco Kairis. Marco, traditional spelling, Kairis, K-Y-R-I-S. You can see what... He looks a lot like Cage, and I really wonder if he was just an extra that they hired for this movie, and then they said, hey, you look like a lot like Nicolas Cage. Do you want to be a stand-in? Or if they hired him as a stand-in and then just put him in as an extra in the movie. I can't find that information. I just did a really quick search. I couldn't find out that answer, but I would love it if like, he was just like an extra who happened to look very much like Cage, and then he's just sort of stuck with Cage for the next like 10 years or so. To my understanding, if you're a stand-in, you're not normally like in other parts of the movie, like on screen right. and stuff. So like that's really awesome that I could see Cage sort of going like, let's try and get this guy some more work. You know, like he's here. We need to sort of fill the frame. You know, we got this guy. and He looks like enough like Nick Cage, but he also looks enough like himself. You know what I'm saying? Like he, yeah. he could pass for Nick Cage, but he could also like not too. So I could see them reusing him and not saying like, is that Nick Cage in the background? Like what's going on? I have one other Cage connection for this movie that I don't know if I necessarily, I don't know if I hear it because it's an audio thing, but supposedly according to the internet, Dana Carvey loosely based his character's speaking style and he has this really weird sort of childlike affectation that you've heard in the clips that we've played in this episode. But he loosely based his character's speaking style 
on a young Mickey Rourke, the motorcycle boy himself oh from Rumble. Oh, my God. Now that you say that, I totally hear it. Like, even his facial expression. It's so weird that one of the earliest movies in Cage's career starred Mickey Rourke, and here we are a decade later, and Dana Carvey is basically trying to reprise that role in a completely different kind of movie. That's really hilarious because the character of Alvin is like a weakling, you know? He's like very much like this little guy. To be doing a Mickey Rourke impression is great sort of contrast to that (laughs) because Mickey Rourke is just known to be like such a badass. So that's all I have for Trapped in Paradise. Anything else that we didn't cover that you had in your notes? Uh, No, man. You you definitely trumped me this episode. (laughs) I told you, like we were talking about it this morning before we started recording. I was like, I have two things and it was the helicopter pilot. I want to know everything there is to know about Al Cerullo and then Marco Kairos. Yeah, uh, I'm not joking when I say we got to crowdfund like, a documentary about that guy, the helicopter pilot guy, because that would be awesome. If you look him up on IMDb, he's literally in, I think, 462 movies as Miscellaneous Crew, and they're almost all helicopter pilot. I really honestly do feel like Every time you see a helicopter in a movie, just based on like the, the, the number of movies he's worked in, it's got to be him. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is unbelievable. The guy is legendary now. I mean, he needs his own podcast. Come on. <laughs> he's not credited, though, in Firebirds, which is mind-blowing. Yeah, that is stunning because it's all about helicopters. <laughs> Maybe those were just actual like military people. I don't know. Mm-mm, possibly because they were Apache helicopters. You know, they were fighter choppers. They weren't just transportation choppers. That's Trapped in Paradise. Uh, next time on Cage Club, we have Kiss of Death. So to catch up on all things Cage Club, see everything we've done already, go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews for every movie. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter. You can do all sorts of fun stuff. Everything you want, Nicholas Cage, and more over at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we'll see you next time on Cage Club. You're nobody till somebody loves you. You're nobody till somebody cares You may be king, you may possess the world and its gold But gold won't bring